Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. We've all seen the videos of children who suffer from various physical, emotional, and mental conditions interacting with animals in therapy programs. They ride, pet, hold, or even swim with a variety of animals in the name of treatment. And broadly, this is referred to as animal-assisted therapy. Yesterday, I searched animal-assisted therapy, and the first video that popped up was from a children's hospital showing testimonials from patients, parents, and therapists about the value of having dogs interact with the sick and depressed children. And even though I'm familiar with the criticisms of animal-assisted therapy, I have to tell you, on the video, it looks awesome, and it seems to feel so good. Well, a few weeks ago, the topic of animal-assisted therapy was nicely reviewed by Professor Hal Herzog in a Psychology Today article titled, Does Animal-Assisted Therapy Really Work? Hal Herzog is a professor of psychology at Western Carolina University, and he's been studying aspects of human-animal interactions for 30 years. Professor Herzog is author of over 100 research articles and the book, Some We Love, Some We Hate, Some We Eat, Why It's So Hard to Think Straight About Animals. Welcome to the program, Hal. Well, I'm so glad to be on here. I'm really glad you asked me, Lori. Thank you. Hal, what is animal-assisted therapy? Well, animal-assisted therapy is the involvement in animals in a variety of clinical contexts. And this can be medical context, you know, for example, uh, bringing animals into hospitals with, uh, you know, children's hospitals for children that are chronically ill. Chronically ill. It could be the use of animals in a psychologically therapeutic uh, context. For example, the use of uh, you know dogs for the treatment of, for example, wounded warriors, veterans with uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. It could be swim with dolphins programs for children with Down syndrome. So it's, it's a wide variety of integration of uh, animals, usually dogs, but not always, into medical and psychological contexts. Hal, the history of using animals for treating various types of ailments is is quite interesting. How did it get started? The idea that that animals can have benefits to people, uh, including almost miraculous healing benefits, really goes back for for centuries. Even Sigmund Freud felt that uh, his dog had a calming effect on some of his patients. But in modern times, the use really goes back in the 1960s to a a psychologist named Boris Levinson, who found out that some of his patients would really open up if his dog, whose name was Jingles, was in the room. And uh, he presented a paper on this to the American Psychological Association in 1961, and it was not taken very seriously at the time. But subsequently, it's really really taken off. One of the uh, real... uh, cornerstones in terms of research was a study that was done in 1980 by Erica Friedman, who's still very involved in this area. And uh, Erica's doctoral dissertation was on uh, what enables some people to survive heart attacks, uh, whereas other people don't. And uh, as part of her dissertation, she uh, looked at uh, uh, about 100 heart attack heart attack victims, and she was interested in, in, uh, in the effects of, uh, you know, 
social networking. And she, just by accident, not by accident, but you know, she just threw in a question, now, do you have a pet? And when she did her subsequent analysis a year later to find out who lived and who didn't, a year after the heart attack, she found out that the people with pets were five times more likely to be alive than the people without pets. And this is what really jump-started the, the, the field, I think, of, of animal-assisted therapy. How widely practiced is animal-assisted therapy? I saw a, a study recently, actually it was a report by the Center for Disease Control, that said that 60% of hospices in the United States incorporate, have the option of incorporating animals in, uh, you know, in, in their hospice programs. Uh, I recently looked at the uh, Psychology Today list of clinical psychologists, and an awful lot of them, one of the things that they offer as part of their practice is animal-assisted therapy. Many, many hospitals now have uh, animal visitation programs. So this is becoming increasingly widespread. Uh, there was a study recently published in the journal of Anthrozoos, and they found that uh, it was a study of, uh, of parents, and they found that parents were more likely to approve the use of animal-assisted therapy than they were for pharmacological, that is, drug therapy, for kids with hyperactivity. Hmm. You covered a large number of both positive and negative facts and observations about animal-assisted therapy, but mostly you voice skepticism about many of the claims and a lot of the research. What are some of the main points you covered in your article, Hal? Well, the, the, the central point that I make is that there's a lot of media attention given to this, and it's become becoming wide, widely believed that animal-assisted therapy works. There's a lot of media hype about this. And I, I only took this on because I was asked to write a chapter for a, uh, hand, an upcoming edition of the Handbook for Animal-Assisted Therapy on the research challenges, challenges of, of this area. And so I, be, I began to look at the research, the research, and what I found was that uh, the research does not match the hype. In terms of in terms of the findings, so essentially what I found was that the uh, problems with animal-assisted therapy really fall into uh, two categories. Uh, the first category is uh, most of the studies we have are methodologically weak, and. I'm not the first person to point this out. A lot of people have pointed this out. Mm -hmm. There's very few randomized control trials. Uh, most of the studies don't have control groups. There's small samples. One of the big problems, and, it, and you sort of, sort of alluded to it a little bit when you see these videos of people interacting with, with animals, yeah. is the question of separating the interaction with the animal with just general novelty effects. So for example, let's say you uh, take your, uh, your kid with autism to, you know, down to Florida for a course of, of dolphin therapy. So you spend a week down there paying $700 a day to swim with dolphins. Well, that's really cool, you know. So the, the question is, 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 the, is the benefit derived from, you know, derived from sort of being in this cool place and swimming around with these really neat animals and having fun for, you know, for a week, or is there something special about the interaction with the animal? So it's sometimes difficult to, difficult to, uh, to, to separate those effects out. And then go ahead. No, please go. Oh, then, then there's a, there's another set of, of problems that I'm. It isn't just a problem with animal assisted therapy. It's a, it's a problem with medicine in general, and, and scientists are are increasingly worried about this. And it's it's the it's a publication bias. Um, because researchers tend to publish positive results, and they don't tend to publish negative results. So, for example. There was a recent FDA study of antidepressant drugs, 
And when they looked at the published trials of these drugs, the published trials showed that 90% of the time the drugs worked. But when the FDA included the unpublished studies, the drugs are only effective in 50% of the trials. And I found the same thing when I looked at the animal-assisted therapy literature. Almost every study that's been published on animal-assisted therapy has worked. And the question is, is it because animal-assisted therapy always works, or is it because the unpublished studies simply get put in the file drawer? And I think this is, I think this is a serious problem in, in, in medicine, clinical medicine generally. Now, you mentioned about dolphins. Let's talk about the animals a bit. It's one thing to employ dogs or horses in a program, but another to use, say, dolphins, who should be in the wild but are confined in order to serve the patients. What are your thoughts on the ethics of the therapy? Well, I have. that's one of the areas that I do have uh, strong feelings about. And I don't think the evidence right now is very good that dolphin therapy in in and of itself actually is particularly effective. There was a recent study uh, that came out just just, uh, in the last issue of the journal Anthrozoos. It was actually a pretty good study that did show it had some small beneficial effects on kids with Down syndrome. Uh, But for the most part, I don't think you're getting your money's worth with dolphin therapy, given the expense of it. But let's pretend for a second that it does work. To me, that's even more problematic because it might work to some extent, for 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 the for the child or for the depressed middle-aged guy that's you know desperately looking for a treatment, but the idea that we keep these animals that are very very bright, essentially in the uh, dolphin equivalent of Guantanamo Bay, because you know we want to use them for human treatments. For me, I don't think it's justified. More with Hal Herzog after break. We're talking about animal-assisted therapy. Don't go away. It's Dr. Lori from Animals Today Radio, and today's Animals Today fun facts are about octopuses. Did you know the oldest octopus fossil was from an animal that lived 296 million years ago? And you can see that fossil at the Field Museum in Chicago. Octopuses have three hearts, one of which supplies blood to the organs, and the other two work to supply the gills. And their blood is a blue color, which transports oxygen better at cold temperatures and in low oxygen waters. And there are your Animals Today fun facts for today. For the past quarter century, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. Its programs include reducing income taxes by allowing a deduction for spay and neuter expenses, preventing animals adopted from shelters from reproducing, and requiring the mandatory identification of dogs and cats to prevent dumping the unwanted. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.org. If you're like most people, you have lots of plans. A financial plan, an exercise plan, a career plan. You also need a plan for the care of your pets when you no longer can provide it. Every day, animals are sent to shelters, terrified and confused, because their owners have become incapacitated or died. Unfortunately, many of them get euthanized. Some people don't give the future a thought. Others assume family members will care for their pets. A better way is to name caregivers and provide detailed instructions about your pet's feeding, social, play, and health care needs. But even designated caregivers can't guarantee your pet will join a stable and loving home. 
Good intentions sometimes take a backseat to life's realities, like a new spouse who doesn't like animals, a sudden desire to travel the world, or the adoptive caregiver's own illness. A legally enforceable pet trust offers the only assurance that your assets will be used as you wish to provide for the comfort and care of your cherished animal companions. Almost every state recognizes pet trusts. Find out how to create one today and take steps to make sure your pet doesn't risk becoming yet another sad shelter statistic. Plan for your pet's lifelong well-being. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. That's AIAnimals.org. That's AIAnimals.org. back to animals today. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. We're speaking to Hal Herzog and we're talking about animal assisted therapy. Hal, continue your thoughts, please, on the ethics of using animals in therapy. Sure. I think there's a uh, big difference between using dolphins for therapy and, say, a golden retriever for therapy. So let's say for a second that animal assisted therapy does work. Uh, I think there's a, a, a different sort of moral problem with using dolphins than there is, for example, you know, a, a dog or a domestic animal who's used to living with people and who, you know, is a, uh, uh, you know, you know, you know our, our friend as opposed to an unwilling captive. Yes, and there's these reading programs that use dogs. and I, I've seen programs where children are on the ground reading aloud to a dog. What do you think's going on there? Um, I'm I'm not, I'm not I'm not sure. There was a uh, a study. You know, you know. I I think one thing that's going on is that is that, is that kids like dogs. I like, I think the idea of reading to a dog in a low stress situation might be easier than reading to a to a to a person. Uh, for example, uh, Karen Allen has found that uh, people are much less s- s- stressed if if they uh, if they. Uh, have to do math problems in front of uh, their dog as opposed to their spouse. <laughs> so, so it may be. So it may. It may be the same. It may be the, the, the same thing with, uh, you know, with with, with, with with reading with dogs. Yeah. Uh, I did see a study recently that was struck me as being problematic in the same regard from an ethical point of view. And this was a study in which they had college students write about their emotional problems. Uh, over a series of days, and half the college students were with in the presence of a of a therapy dog, and half the college students did it uh, not being in the presence of the dog. And this this uh, this this the use of of writing about emotional experience has actually been shown to be very th- therapeutic, whether or not there's a dog present or not. Um, and they found that the dogs were, were particularly good in terms of reducing the stress in these students. However, the interesting thing is that one of these were two trained therapy dogs. At the end of the study, one of the dogs completely freaked out and had to be taken away from therapy programs. And so I think in that, this is the first evidence that I've seen, uh, at least is in the literature, of where uh, one of the dogs actually seemed to have taken on the sort of emotional burden of, 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 of being a therapist. So I'm really, I'm really curious about this, and this was for the first time. I was really thinking, well, maybe there is an emotional cost to the animal of being a therapy, being a therapy animal. Wow, interesting, great thought. Hal, you have a wonderful book, Some We Love, Some We Hate, Some We Eat, 
why it's so hard to think straight about animals. By the way, thanks for sending us a copy, and we've been really enjoying it. Um, your book is an introduction to anthrozoology, and you refer to yourself as an anthrozoologist. What is that? Well, it's a relatively new field of study. We, we go back about 20 or 30 years. Uh, most people, as you mentioned, have never heard of it. It's basically the study of human relationships with other species, and it's really wide-ranging. That's one of the things that I love about it. So, for example, the last issue of uh, the journal Anthrozoos, which is the major journal in our field, included articles that range from how ethical vegetarians deal with living with cats, you know, because their cats need to eat meat, even if, they're, even if their owners find it immoral. Right. Uh, there was a paper on the role of zoos in modern society, and then there was a study on the impact of dolphin therapy on children with Down syndrome. So, so that sort of just sort of illustrates the the wide range of of, of, of topics that anthozoologists study. And the other thing is that we're in addition to being interdisciplinary, we're also international. So, for example, that issue of the journal included papers from people from the United States, Australia, the Netherlands, the UK, and Denmark. So, uh, there, there's it, it, it's a relatively small and obscure field of science, but it's tons of fun and it's very, very exciting. Why is the formal study of anthrozoology important? That's a really great question, and it's important because some of the most important relationships that we have are with other species. Uh, when I ask my students, you know, with how many of you have a pet? How many of you deeply love a pet? How many of you is your pet one of the most important creatures in your life? So about 60% of them will raise their will raise their hand. And the other thing is that animals are involved in almost. This is this is what fascinates me. Animals are involved in almost every aspect of human life. So the way that most people deal with animals most of the time is by eating them. So uh, that's, you know, that raises you know, tons of sort of interesting psychological questions, ethical questions, uh, environmental questions. Animals are involved in our religious imagery. They're involved in our, in our art. They're involved in our literature. Uh, in some societies, they've become our best friends. In some societies, they're, they're pariahs. So it, it, to me, it's just an absolutely fascinating window into general questions about human nature. In your position as a professor of psychology, are you finding that students are interested in the field? Oh, they're completely interested in the field. And one of the, one of the uh, things that's happened in the last 10 years is that programs are popping up uh, in anthrozoology. And there's several colleges now that offer majors in anthrozoology. Uh, there's a lot of courses being taught on various aspects of uh, our relationships with other animals. And there's just, there's just a tremendous amount of interest in this, in this field right now. And are there new trends in anthrozoology? Yeah, one of, the, one, of the, one of the trends, and I think it's a really exciting trend, is that there's starting to be some research money available. <laughs> and uh, so, for example, yeah. the, uh, the, uh, the Waltham Center for Pet Nutrition in the UK and the National Institute of Health in the United States have uh, started putting considerable amount of grant money into better research on animal-assisted therapy. So I think for the first time, we're getting some really good studies 
on the impact of uh, animals on on human health and well-being. So I'm I'm really looking forward to I'm really looking forward to that. There's a lot of interest right now in the issue of does violence to animals lead to uh, cruelty to humans later in life? For example, in little kids, in other words, are, are kids that are mean to animals do so they grow up to be sociopaths? Uh, the answer, by the way, uh, is uh, most of the time, no, they don't. Most of the time, they grow up to be normal human beings. But I have a minority view on that. Mm, I'd love to discuss that with you sometime. Hal Herzog, thank you so much. Can you tell us your website? It's halherzog.com. Thanks so much for joining us today on Animals Today. Animals Today is a project of the Animal Welfare Organization Advancing the Interests of Animals. Since 2000, Advancing the Interests of Animals has been advocating for greater compassion and respect for all animals. Visit us at aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. And please check us out on Facebook and join the discussion about all the animal issues and topics we cover. And we hope you'll consider supporting the continuing broadcast of Animals Today Show by clicking the Donate button on the website. That's www.aianimals.org. And thanks for listening. Your Animals Today fun facts for the day are about koalas. When early European settlers first encountered koalas in Australia, they thought the tree-climbing animals were bears or monkeys. Even today, people still incorrectly refer to koalas as koala bears. In fact, koalas, like kangaroos, are actually marsupials, which are also known as pouched mammals because the adult females have a marsupium, or pouch, where their young stay until fully developed. Koalas are only found in Australia, and they are one of that country's iconic symbols. Koalas have special physical characteristics that complement their tree-dwelling lifestyle including their two opposable digits to grip branches and to pick the tasty eucalyptus leaves, their main form of nourishment. And these are your Animals Today fun facts for the day. Welcome back to Animals Today. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. I recently learned about a new and important risk to the health of our dogs and cats I need to share with you. Now, most of us know to keep medicine for people away from our pets, particularly dogs. You don't want them to get into your pills or those of a guest and poison themselves. But with the rapid growth of hormone replacement therapy for various human conditions, dogs and cats can be sickened when they are exposed to these potent preparations. Here to explain is Dr. Srinu Lingretti from All Creatures VCA in La Quinta, California. Welcome, Srinu. Hi, Lori. Thank you for having me back. Srinu, what constitutes hormone replacement therapy, and what do these treatments purport to do? So hormone replacement therapy is a relatively new treatment that's been approved in the past decade by the FDA. It is a lotion, a gel, a type of spray that uh, are prescribed by doctors human physicians for patients to apply to their skin so they absorb hormones through the skin instead of having to take pills or injections. And this is basically used, especially in the elderly population or people who are going through menopause or having other conditions as they get older, to try to replace these therapies to bring us to a new state of health. And the the consequences of what we're seeing is that since these are applied on the skin in various areas, a lot of animals are actually getting an absorption through their own skin, too, by just physical contact with their clients. 
And what these uh, hormones are meant to do is, of course, is enhance our lives, help us to feel better, to replace these hormones that we lose as we get older. But I got to admit, there are even some younger people who use it for various reasons. You know, if they have, for example, uh, cancer at an early age and have ovaries removed, we see it in some younger people, too. They're using these therapies, too. It's becoming a very, very popular form of treatment. And unfortunately, in the veterinary community, we're seeing some side effects from this that are very, very detrimental for animals. So you're saying people apply them to their skin and then they'll they'll hug their cat or their cat will lie in their body a certain way and then they'll they'll absorb in their skin or they'll lick it off and ingest it? That is exactly it. These ointments and, and lotions are actually prescribed to be placed on places like the inner elbows, the wrists, the legs. And when you have your pet on your lap or if your pet sleeps with you in your bed, some of these lotions even get on the bedding and actually can be transferred to your pets. And, of course, the number one thing is that the pets love to give us kisses and lick our skin. And some of these, unfortunately, don't have a bad taste to them. So the pets are actually licking them right directly from from the skin, and this is becoming how the mode of transmission to these pets are absorbing a larger amount. You can understand that a dose that a person takes on a daily basis that they put on their skin is going to be a lot more potent to a tiny little pet under, under 10 pounds, and so we see a lot of side effects from this. Yes, and we're going to get into that. So, but what are the, the challenges in, in figuring out that hormone replacement therapy is the problem, both as a, as a guardian and as a veterinarian? Well, yeah, because the problem that we see is that the, the side effects that we see from these excessive amounts of hormones in animals could be from so many different things. And since this is a relatively new treatment of form that is growing in popularity, it's not always at the top of our list when we think of it as a reason for a problem. So uh, the, some of the side effects, for example, that we see are dogs and cats uh, actually developing some kind of form of going into heat, you know, developing some sexual tissue like mammary glands actually in a male dog or small testicles or a small penis in a, a male dog or in a cat, for example, you may not even see any signs other than they're howling as if they're in heat and it almost seems like they're in pain. And there's so many causes that could be this. You've got to, of course, rule out all the major medical reasons that we know of and have always known that could cause these conditions. And a lot of times it's very difficult to even ask personal questions to a client to say, are you taking some creams and where on your body are you applying them? It can be quite embarrassing for the client, and it's, it's a question that you, know, you have to approach very, very cautiously depending on uh, your client's uh, men, me, mental state and what they're feeling. So it can be very, very difficult to diagnose. There's just so many different reasons why these signs that we see in these animals. I've got to admit, the number one thing I think that we see that I've found in the past uh, probably seven to eight years that I've noticed this problem is that a lot of dogs and cats, actually the only sign they show is hair loss. Mm. And there's probably about, God, I could probably rattle off about 20 to 30 different reasons why there would be hair loss in an animal. We don't even think that it could be coming from a medication that the owner is applying to their own body. Other than the signs that you see in these animals that are exposed to hormone preparations, what sort of medical conditions can this lead to? Well, I got to admit that most of the time they do okay. You know, they usually do recover without any problems unless someone is applying estrogen to their body. Estrogen to small mammals actually can be very toxic. It unfortunately can cause bone marrow suppression, which actually can be irre irreversible. 
it can actually turn into something fatal. So that is probably, of all the side effects and medical problems we see, all of these things actually do reverse with time, except for when someone is using estrogen. That can be very, very dangerous. And could it actually cause cancer in the animals? That is the other thing that we do see. We see in a lot of females, for example, especially uh, if they've been spayed later in life, you can actually, the estrogen can increase the risk of cancer, uh, breast cancer, but the mammary gland tissue starts to develop and becomes abnormal, and some animals are predisposed to it more than others, and yes, that is the other thing that we can see. Fortunately, that can be caught early if, if it is detected and, and treated um, in most of the time, but yes, that can also, as you can imagine, and know it can be fatal also. And, and, and can this often lead to unnecessary surgeries for the animals? And if, Absolutely. If- You've got to understand from a veterinarian standpoint, you're the top things that we worry about are, well, where could estrogen be coming in this right. animal's body? And there are certain conditions. There are certain benign tumors that are functional in the body that we would want to look for. So, of course, we start running a series of tests that can be very expensive. And ultimately, when you're stumped and you can't find the answer, sometimes you just say, well, let's go explore, because sometimes that's the best thing to do, to just look for something. Uh, like, for example, a lot of uh, cats and dogs, when they get spayed, if a little bit of the ovary tissue accidentally slips and gets into some of the abdominal contents, no joking, it can actually turn into a functional tissue and start producing estrogen on its own. And, and that's the number one thing we think about. Well, oh, my gosh, there must be some kind of remnant of the ovarian tissue that was left behind at the time of the spade, no matter right. who did it, even the most experienced surgeon. And that would be, unfortunately, you know, we see these dogs number of cases across the country going to surgery looking for things like this or tumors uh, that we can't detect on our testing, on non-invasive testing. And it's just uh, unbelievable how much uh, expense and, and a lot of unfortunate procedures are done on pets just because it could be something as simple as this. For treatment, is there more to that than just preventing exposure? Yeah, there, I mean, it depends if uh, the the creams are actually blocking certain types of pathways in the body. For example, there are certain hormones that actually suppress the adrenal glands, and, and while we're waiting for the adrenal glands to come back, as we're waiting for it to get out of the system, we do supplement with certain medications. It's a case-by-case kind of scenario. But most of the time what I find is, you know, the, the signs of this actually, this is what also makes it difficult. They could be pretty quick. You know, when somebody starts using a cream, it could be within weeks, but it could take months before any of these signs appear. And, but sometimes when you stop using the hormones or you place them in a different location to minimize the exposure to an animal, the, the side effects actually may take months to ye- even a year for it to go away. And it's a long waiting game, kind of wondering what is happening to my pet and are we actually going to get better. So it kind of depends on a case-by-case basis about what medications we might use or is it just worth it to just wait and see and, and find that time when it gets better. Sreeno, are you seeing a lot of these cases in your, in your office? I hate to say it. I, I do. I do. It is a growing phenomenon. And where I practice in our valley, we do have an elderly client base. And so and I think I see possibly a disproportionate a number of cases compared to other parts of the country. Um, it has become very, very popular in our valley here and with our retired community. And this is also... A lot is being also applied to men, too. Men are taking testosterone replacements to help as they get older, too. 
as well as some preparations which include a little bit of progesterone and estrogen for men and women. It's uh, interesting how the, the combination of all of these hormones can actually help people live better, but the side effects to our pets, yeah, I, I am seeing a lot more cases as time goes on, and I'm trying to remember to ask these questions in a very delicate manner when I do suspect that this could be the case. I, I think it's wonderful we brought this up because it's it's a lot of people don't know about this. I think it's wonderful that you ask your your clients about this. I, I'm I'm hopeful that that a lot of veterinarians do this when they see early signs of of this problem. Like like you said, hair loss can be an early sign. So thank you very much for sharing your expertise on this matter with us, Dr. Srinu Lingretti. Thank you. Absolutely, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me back. Dr. Lori Kirshner, and today's Animals Today Minute is about pangolins, medium-sized mammals covered with scales over nearly their entire body. They're native to Africa, China, India, and Southeast Asia. Pangolins are nocturnal, staying in burrows or in trees during the day and hunting for food like termites and ants at night. Their powerful claws and long tongue are their main tools used to dig up and consume their food from dirt mounds. They can weigh as much as 40 pounds and can live to be 20 years old. Pangolins have no teeth, but instead their gizzard-like stomach, along with ingested sand and small stones, help grind up their food for digestion. The conservation status of pangolins is vulnerable. And even though commercial trade in these animals is banned worldwide, they continue to be the world's most trafficked animals. Their meat is considered a delicacy, and their keratin scales are used in traditional medicine. Penguins make easy prey for hunters who merely collect them after they have assumed their defensive mode by rolling themselves up into a ball. Other natural predators include hyenas and leopards. And that's today's Animals Today Minute. Are you ready to better your life and up your business game? Secret Knock has been hailed one of the top events for business leaders in 2017. Ranked number one by Inc.com and number two by Forbes.com. This two-day event has a limited number of seats and they fill up fast. Hear real-life legends give their best advice. Also, make valuable business connections and prepare for 2017 to be your best year yet. Visit SecretKnock.co to learn more and apply now. When educator-turned-hip-hop artist D1 finished paying back his student loans, he celebrated by writing the song Sally Mae Back. Now he's teaming up with Sally Mae to help students get on track to paying off their loans. I'm passionate about helping people learn about financial literacy. The reality is that students are hungry for information. They want to understand the facts about paying back their loans and the best way to do it. Sally Mae's Rick Castellano adds, We're thrilled to work with D1 to help students get into the rhythm of repayment. He lays out the process and steps that are both direct and doable, teaching the right moves for building credit and successfully paying back student loans. Now through January 11th, Sally Mae customers with eligible student loans have the chance to win up to $10,000 to pay down their loans. For D1's complete list of tips and to enter the Pays to Repay contest, visit SallyMay.com. That's SallyMay.com. I'm Bob Pipo for the Consumer Radio Network. Listening to Animals Today Radio, your home for serious talk about animals. Now, in its eighth year, Animals Today covers all animal related topics and issues worldwide with an emphasis on animal welfare. 
Animals Today is a project of the nonprofit animal welfare organization Advancing the Interests of Animals. Its mission is to improve the lives of animals and to encourage increased compassion and respect for all living beings. Check them out at AIanimals.org. That's AIanimals.org. Your donation to Advancing the Interests of Animals will support the ongoing production of Animals Today. Just visit AIanimals.org and click Support Us. And thanks for listening. Major support for Animals Today Radio comes from International Society for Animal Rights. For decades, ISAR has been a world leader in the battle against dog and cat overpopulation and its moral, social, and economic costs. Please visit their website at www.isaronline.org. Welcome back to the show. Okay, so it's kitty season. Have you heard that term, kitty or kitten season? When I first heard that, I found it to be sort of strange because it implies that more kittens are born at certain times of the year than others. And not being directly involved in cat rescue and feral cat colony management, I really had never thought about it. So what exactly is kitty season? And what do you need to know about it? I want to welcome to the show David and Lee Kirk, founders of Forever Meow Cat Rescue, a nonprofit cat rescue run entirely by volunteers dedicated to ending the unnecessary shelter euthanasia of cats and kittens in the Coachella Valley of California. Welcome to the show, guys. Hi there. David, what is kitten season? Uh, Lori, broadly speaking, kitten season is that period when most kittens are born in any particular geographical regions. Cats can produce uh, all throughout the year, but their reproductive drive is highly tuned to the temperature, and there has to be at least 12 hours of daylight in a day. In Coachella Valley's latitude, with our temperature, that's basically from the end of February through mid-October. Cat's gestation period is about nine weeks, so we expect the first litters in March, the beginning of April. In other words, right now is kitten season. So kitten season varies in different climates. Oh, absolutely. As I said, the reproductive cycle is tied to temperatures and hours of light. So where ours, ours is around March to October, Alaska or Minneapolis would be completely different. Cats can become fertile many times a year. Why do you think there is this season where it peaks, David? Well, as we come out of our winter, which is the low period of reproduction, there are very few female cats already pregnant. So as the males uh, become active and start roaming, they find many more females to, um, to mate with, and, and hence the peak is usually at the start of, of the reproductive season. Lee, from a practical standpoint, what does kitty season mean to cat rescue groups like yours? Well, this is when a tsunami of kittens and kitten litters start arriving in shelters and rescues, and these are typically found on the streets or in the fields by people in the public, and it's absolutely the time when all shelter and rescue and foster resources are strained to the limit and beyond. So let's say I'm walking around and I come across some kittens. What should I do? Well, most people who come across a litter of newborn or very, very young kittens out in the public 
definitely have a compassionate instinct to save them. Unfortunately, people don't realize what is involved in saving them or what that really means. Um, so the first instinct is that people want to pick them up, and sometimes that can have unintended negative consequences. And this is because neonatal kittens have a very poor survival rate with inexperienced human bottle feeders. And most shelters simply do not have adequate resources for all of those neonatal litters that end up in their hands. And so these litters end up being euthanized in the shelter. Um, you know, humans just can't provide the level of nurturing that mother cats can. And it's also very traumatizing for the mother cats to have their litters literally stolen. Moreover, rarely do mother cats abandon their litters, and this is what people tend to think if they see a litter without the mother. And in reality, the mother cat is usually either off feeding herself or she's in the process of moving her litter to a safer nest. It's very typical for mom cats to move their litters once or twice while they're raising them um, for survival instinct. And then finally, um, a lot of mothers like to take a break from nursing, and when they do that, they tend to sit off to the side and hold vigil over their nest or their hiding place for the litter. So people will often come across that litter and mom cat's just lurking, <laughs> lurking somewhere nearby, and um, you know she has not abandoned them. So we encourage people to, before they pick up that litter, best uh, action is to photograph them, and uh, leave them alone and give the mother cat a chance to come back. And we suggest leaving them alone for a couple of hours and um, share that photo or video with the shelter or rescue group to determine the age of the kittens because that will depend on what resources are needed to rescue them if that is indeed needed. And then in a couple of hours, if mom cat hasn't come back um, then and the kittens seem as though they're hungry or in distress, that might be the time to rescue them. But, you know, when we say really leave that nest alone for a couple of hours and give mom cat a chance to come back because she's hiding and lurking and she sees you. So if you run and check on that nest every 15 minutes, you know, she won't come back. So definitely leave them alone, um, especially if they're not clearly in distress. When you say leave them alone, give them a distance. Don't be hovering over them. Like leave and then come back in a couple hours, correct? Right. Lee, what if the kittens are in an area where predators, other predators can get to them? Should, should I pick up the kittens and move them to another area close by? You know, this is a common reason why people say they pick them up because they felt that the environmental conditions were unsafe. Um, we usually suggest that when it comes to predators, you know, these mom cats are um, typically savvy um, and know how to hide and protect their litters. And it's a part of um, sort of the ecology to kind of let, let them do their thing in the environment. Other times, people find them in odd places like construction sites where there's a lot of activity and, you know, earth needs to be moved and mom's nest is in the way. If it's a case like that, then, you know, unfortunately, the kittens will have to be gathered. And if possible, we recommend um, finding and capturing mom cat, even if that, that means having to trap her and get her saved. Um, you know, that, that sometimes has to be done because of the nature of the environmental area where the mom in the nest is found. David, any concluding thoughts here? Uh, Nothing different than what we've already said. I think the single most important thing is stop. Don't let your natural compassionate instinct uh, take over and do something that may have negative consequences. So if the kittens are not in distress, take a little break for a couple of hours. Let the mother have a chance to do her job. They're usually very, very good at it. 
and we've seen so many times when people have gone back after two hours and the litter has gone safely. Great advice. Thank you so much, David and Lee Kirk. You're welcome. And thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. <laughs>